Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you today, sir? Yeah, I'm doing great. I'm glad to be talking about these things with you. We've got a lot to cover, and I'm wondering where it's going to go. This is the beginning of the war chapters. There's like 10 of these chapters we're going to cover about uh, Captain Moroni. We're not going to be getting to the stripling warriors today. That's going to be next week. This will mostly be about the formation of the different factions, the pettiness of the politics happening between the Nephites and the Lamanites, the many different dissensions, what sets it all off, and what we can learn from all of it. Again, this is 10 chapters. 10 chapters I barely got through for a couple of reasons. One, reading is super hard for me, generally speaking, but two, there's just so much changing of leaders, changing of alliances, all just so much mess happening here. We will do our best to keep things straight, but we are we are probably going to do most of our focusing on the themes that can be explored in these chapters, the lessons we can learn from them, and we, we will do our darndest to keep the names, the dates, the chronology in order as best we can. So just bear with us as we do that. But before we do, just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay. So this week we are in Alma 43 through 52. We see the first conflict of the war chapters where Zarahemna, the leader of a group of Nephite dissenters, joins the Lamanites with other Nephite dissenters, stirs the Lamanites up to anger against the Nephites, and comes to battle with the Nephites who are led by the Captain Moroni. This does not go well for Zarahemna. Amalekiah is the next Nephite dissenter to try his hand at this business and he does so with a lot of strategy and subversion more so than uh, Zarahemna did and he employs this to such a degree that he actually becomes the king of the Lamanites while most of the preceding war does not go Amalekiah's way there are contentions among the Nephites that allow the Lamanites to get the upper hand briefly they take over an entire city and eventually like three or four more cities but this is before Tiankum performs a stealthy assassination of Amalekiah. We'll meet him a little bit later. And throughout this story, there is a lot going on. The Come Follow Me manual actually says it's going to be kind of hard to gain a lot from these particular chapters or be spiritually fed by them. At least that's the implication. But there are several details about how they got ready for war as well as their different motivations as relayed by the author. And those seem to be power for the Lamanites and uh, the defense of liberty, faith, and family for the Nephites. These are things that we can relate to, and there are parallels that we can draw to our own lives through both the preparations for war as well as uh, their causes. Now, uh, Derek, is there any other historical, literary, or theological context you want to give to these verses we're about to I don't open think up? so, other than this is a pro tip. Many of you readers might want to get the Maxwell Institute study edition of the Book of Mormon edited by Grant Hardy. It's really cool because it takes the text of the Book of Mormon, puts it in paragraphs, puts section headings, the embedded documents are set off, 
when people have spoken dialogue, it's put in quotation marks so you know where it begins and ends. The poetry is set off in, in lines so you can read the poetry. And it gives you footnotes that tie you to the original manuscript and the printer's manuscript. And it really, there's a really a lot of cool things there. The flow makes a little bit more sense. I still don't completely fully understand these war chapters because there's a lot there. Um, and I uh, haven't done the work that I needed to do to really tease apart every, every verse of this. Mm-hmm. This but, didn't lend itself to a very slow read. Yeah. But yeah, so, it, so this helps. Uh, war is complex. A lot of us want to Disneyfy wars and make it like, oh, here are the good... And we'll get to this later about yeah. who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And in terms of literary form, we've got a lot of political... I hate to say propaganda here, but that's exactly what this is. Mm-hmm. We've got one side that's really glorified. We don't have records from the other side. And that that gets into this feminist principle called the uh, hermeneutic of suspicion. Have we ever talked about that? We've talked briefly about the hermeneutic of suspicion. This is the whole thing about whose story is being told, whose voice right. is not. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, even though it's the, the, the text is the word of God, it's still filtered through all these human fingerprints, and in many cases, the fingerprints of men, mm-hmm. as opposed to women. And so we wonder, like, who's telling the story? How do they benefit from the way the story is told? Whose voices are not there? And this is the really cool thing about feminist uh, biblical interpretation, is that it could be possible to, in some ways, reconstruct those missing voices based on how the surrounding characters are moving and how they respond. And we get a little bit of this. We can reconstruct some of the na- the Lamanite system and their beliefs based on uh, what Zenith reported, right? How he reacted and how he spoke to them. You know, we can we can read sort of a mirror reading of seeing, well, what was what was he responding to? Some things like that. And so let's look at this. We've got we've got this text in Alma forty three verse nine, and it talks about the de- the design of the Nephites was to support their lands and their houses and their wives and their children. And notice how it says their wives. And, and we see this later again in the title of Liberty where it talks about our wives and our children, meaning it's not the wives that are writing the story. It's the people who had wives that are uh-huh. writing. So, so we realize this is written from the standpoint of the men, and I'm wondering how different this would be from the standpoint of the women. It, it looks like both the Lamanites and the Nephites are eager to go to war for different reasons. The Nephites mm-hmm. are saying it's completely self-defense and they don't really want a war. But I'm wondering what the women on both sides would have to say about these wars. Do they want the wars? Do they want their their children going off to war and dying? Mm-hmm. Maybe not. It seems like the majority of the Lamanites didn't even want this war to begin with. Yeah, I mean, we've got leaders, demagogues that are stirring people up, and, right. and so we have to look at whose voices are there. And that reminds me a lot about this text from the uh, from ancient Athens. So Aristophanes was a playwright. He was a comedian like me in the uh, <laughs> Always going to always going to go I'm, for it. I'm 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 pretending to be a comedian. Mm-hmm. And so Aristophanes uh in the 400s BCE wrote a play about the Peloponnesian War, which was the war between Sparta and Sparta's allies uh, against Athens and Athens's allies. And what happened in the, this didn't actually happen in real life, but in the play, the Spartan women and the Athenian women got together because the Peloponnesian War lasted about 30 years. 
and the women on both sides wanted peace. So the women of both enemy, you know, both these opposing forces secretly get together and conspire to bring the men into a state where they wanted to have peace. And the way they did this was they refused to have sex with their husbands until the war ended. <laughs> and by refraining from, from sexual relations, they thought, well, we're going to really, you know, resist what's going on and, and make the, uh, get, the, uh, get the men off both sides in a place where they have to negotiate. And they also, like, uh, seized the Acropolis and, and the treasury so they couldn't even fund the war. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, this whole thing is a comedy. And what you've got is... Um, the actors that are playing this have huge erections partway through the play because they're so desperate and they're so unrelieved. And it's just really hilarious how... And uh, actually, the women succeed in the end because these these men are tired of walking around with these erections and they need to do something about it. So then they end the war so that they can have sex with their wives. And I'm wondering, well, that's really different than what happens in the Book of Mormon. (laughs) 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 But my point is... Like, we have no idea what the women on both sides want. And not all the women probably wanted the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Women are not a monolith, of course. But we don't have those things. And I'm wondering how different the story would be if we had women in charge, if we had uh, records of what the women wanted or or other minority voices within the text. Like, maybe not everyone on the Nephite side agreed with with Moroni. And we have evidence of that. A lot of people didn't want to didn't want to fight. And so we've got to look through this and see, um, yeah, just think about this and, and wonder, where could this have gone? And, and what don't we know? What do you think? Having these stories would certainly add more complexity and clarity at the same time, because we could have a clearer picture of what's happening as well as more to consider. I can only speculate as to what those things might be, so I'm not going to do that. But I will say that the hermeneutic of suspicion has really colored the way I read the text because now I can't trust every action or motive of the so-called protagonists of the Book of Mormon narratives. Neither can I judge very harshly the the same of the so-called antagonists because there are stories and points of view that we don't have, as you said. We have to use a healthy amount of discernment as we read these stories of conflict because the only thing we know for sure is that we don't know everything and these characters are more flawed and complex than we tend to give them credit for. Just about every Book of Mormon prophet tells us this, but we forget it on occasion as evidenced by our occasionally oversimplified readings of the text that cause us to draw conclusions that may not be correct and in some cases pretty damaging. For example, the dominant assumption about the sin next to murder being sexual sin that we read about last week. This reminds me of something you said. I think you said something like, black folks don't have the privilege of having perfect heroes. No. Like like all of the, uh, and I think we talked about this with Kobe, but you could say the same thing of Dr. King, oh, basically absolutely. anyone. I think that's who we were talking about, actually. We were talking about Dr. King. And I think a lot of us in the white world want to Disney-fy our heroes, and we just don't, of course, they're flawed too, but we just don't 
aren't fate we don't have to face it we have the privilege of ignoring that if we want to and i think that's what we have to do with the book of mormon like some people will read it in a very black and white way like who are the good guys and who are the bad guys but we don't have to read it that way even if the nephite authors want us to read it that way we don't really have to we can we can really see those cracks and we can see the human fingerprints and we can see where these other voices are are trying to shine through mm-hmm. for example let's look at the um the queen so um, malachi and i'm jumping ahead a little bit but it's it's about the same thing malachi takes the lamanite queen as his wife and we don't know how she feels about that like is that what she wanted is that is that like we have no idea we have no idea what she how she felt about that and whether she was deceived Oh, she definitely like, was deceived. Um, yeah, whether she was, how much she was deceived and thinking he was a good guy and what the foundation of all that was. And Well, they straight up told him yeah. that his servants, that the king of the Lamanite servants killed him right. rather than Amalekai and his servants. They straight up told her, yes. lied mm-hmm. to her about her husband's death. Yeah. So, like, but my point is we don't have her voice. We don't know right. what she would have said or what she, what, how willing she was. We don't know that. And, what and we I, do know is that she was taken advantage of. Them. Right, right, exactly. That much we do know, and that has to be named. When we get to chapter 48, we read in verses 4 and 5, first of all, we see the goal to subjugate the Nephites in verse 4. He was determined, this is talking about Amalickiah, he was determined because of the greatness of the number of his people to overpower the Nephites and to bring them into bondage. And thus, this is verse 5 now, thus he did appoint chief captains of the Zoramites, they being the most acquainted with the strength of the Nephites and their places of resort and the weakest part of their cities. Therefore, he appointed them to be chief captains over his armies. He made chief captains of people that used to be Nephites because they are presumably the best acquainted with Nephite methods, with Nephite civilization, because they were Nephites themselves. He's using the Nephites' own people against them as one of their primary weapons. We actually see something similar happening today as racist whites are captioned or sorry captained and captivated by black agents of white supremacy like candace owens or the hodge twins the assumption is made that because they are black people that agree with white supremacy they are the best people to follow despite the only qualification they have to lead being their membership of and disdain for the very group whites are trying to subjugate. The text will even tell us later that Amalickiah doesn't seem to care about his soldiers' lives past their ability to help him meet his ends. We got to be mindful of the long-term efficacy of this particular strategy for the individuals involved and the institutions involved. While the Nephite dissenters' purpose is to stir up anger and have a knowledge of Nephite strategy that'll be useful, this doesn't actually translate into victories. They were outwitted at almost every turn, and their cause wasn't just. The only battle victories that actually came to the Lamanites here were because the Nephites were fighting amongst themselves. Similarly, the uh, the charlatans and the hucksters like Owens and them, they, they certainly enjoy power and privilege that comes with embracing white supremacy. Owens gets a pretty fat check and she gets positions of power and influence for being able to take a dump on her people. But, uh, and you know, that's similar to how the Nephite dissenters were granted power and positions of chief captains because of their Nephite heritage and disdain for it, but they're not going to win. These, these people, they're fairly easy to outwit. 
and their cause simply is not just. White supremacy is not just. That cause isn't just. So they are going to fail. Well, I hate to try to empathize with Owens and the Hodge twins, but... Oh, I see your face. Yeah, I'm waiting. What what's, what you about to say, Derek? <laughs> but in a sense, we can still take a step back and realize that this is all caused by white supremacy to begin with. And the fact that some black people can get an advantage by cooperating with white supremacy is part of the whole system. It's, mm-hmm. it's designed that way. And maybe so they get the benefit of fame and power and money and the goodwill of all of these white supremacists. And so we can see not at all that it justifies what they're doing, but we can see what happened and we can see why blaming an individual black voice for the whole problem isn't the right thing to do. Or it's not something I feel comfortable doing. I think we should sure, really I would do it. that all day. Sure. <laughs> I would blame point them is, all day. My point they is know that, exactly what they're doing. Yes, but my point is that white supremacy is the only thing that enabled them to, to make that the best option that for themselves. I get that. I get that. And I don't want to excuse it because it's still awful and wrong. But what I'm saying is, it's we have, there's a whole system behind that makes that possible and what ends up happening is that white vo- white people will will instead of believing all the black people that say things that will have to cause them to reevaluate their life mm-hmm. will believe the one voice that doesn't challenge them at all and i mean that's not fair i mean like we should it, it's so convenient if they just listen to the voices that reassure them that everything is okay with them that's the exact opposite of what the gospel does it Mm -hmm. the gospel afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted and um so that's and i think this gets back into the conversation of of like who is a racist like is it fair or not to say that black people can be racist against black people but rather than saying, have the conversation about what someone is, we can talk about what they do and how it functions. So I don't know if Candace Owens is is a white supremacist or not. Well, I she guess definitely she is. is. She is. She's an agent. She is the agent of white yeah. supremacy. But what I want to say is what she does functions to do the work of white supremacy. Uh-huh. And, the re- and yeah, that's kind of what I would say. Yeah, that is, that is what I would say as well. And, and you're right that she's a white supremacist, but once you make that label, then the argument turns around and there's defensiveness and there's you end up spiraling around a different conversation than I think the the one that actually solves the problem. What do no, you think? I get, no, I get you about that. Like, I'm very hesitant to actually call anybody a racist for that reason. Right, it's because then you, people will say, well, she's black. She can't be anti-black. The conversation—it's yeah. too easy. It's too easy to derail the conversation yeah. by simply calling somebody a racist. Right. Rather, you can acknowledge their behavior because mm-hmm. there can't really be a debate about the behavior. You can talk about the behavior. You can talk about why it's problematic. But as soon as you label somebody a racist, then there becomes, you know, then that changes the argument entirely and makes it too easy to derail the conversation after that. So, mm-hmm. typically, when I have conversations with people about this stuff, I never call Candace Owens a white supremacist. A white supremacist. I never call anybody who espouses her words or who shares them a racist or a white supremacist, but I do point out the problematic elements of what it is right. that they are doing and how that reinforces structures of white supremacy. Yeah, and I and I think this is a, a really tragic and tricky thing to talk about, but there are a number of women who 
who do the work of patriarchy. There are a number oh, of absolutely. gay people who do the work of, of homophobia. And there's, you know, it's um, people are put into these spots where the best thing they can do is cooperate to get some crumbs. Mm-hmm. And and that's the opposite of what Jesus did. He said, I'm not, you know, I, I'd rather die than, than cooperate with Rome. Yeah, definitely. So what happens here, starting with verse 9, this is talking about Captain Moroni's fortifications. In their weakest fortifications, he did place the greater number of men, and thus he did fortify and strengthen the land which was possessed by the Nephites. So in their weakest fortifications, he placed a greater number of men. Look where, I I liken this immediately to the church, and I wanted to say to Mm -hmm. ourselves, Look at where our weakest parts are. Like, just off the top of your head, Derek, what do you think are the biggest weaknesses of the church right now? Well, I mean, I want to... The, the first thing that popped into my mind ones. was that... Notice what Captain Moroni didn't say. He didn't say all fortifications matter. <laughs> <laughs> he actually looked at where there, was, where there was a need and put more resources where the need was. He didn't say, well, all fortifications are going to get the same number of men. He literally put the greatest number of men at the place where it was most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I think... Obviously, in the church, we've got vulnerabilities around uh, people of color, women, and LGBTQ people. But then there's others, uh, such as disabled people, uh, people who are not American citizens, people who are citizens, you know, in other countries. Like, we have really solidified the position of the straight, white, abled American male with money. Mm-hmm. Um, which is another thing. We need to look at the people without uh, economic or educational resources in our church. There's a lot of a lot of gaps. Not that there's anything wrong with them, right. but, they, but there's definitely need for fortifications around mm-hmm. that. I noticed the same thing as well, and I noticed that this is something I really feel like the church can learn from because this is what Moroni did. He strengthened his weak areas, and he did so proactively. Like Because of these weak areas— there is a lot of room for people to say that this church is not worth staying in or that it's not worth investigating. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that because what Moroni did, which was direct resources, direct manpower to these weak areas, he was ready to take on the Lamanites. He was ready to take on the opposition. And that is something we really need to take to heart is this ability, like not just on an individual level, because that's typically right. how we talk about this. We talk about us you know, personally fortifying our own weak mm-hmm. areas. Or like, your family, like right. making your family a, a fortified. and Right. Or dealing with your own personal demons. Like uh, I remember attending an addiction support group for, uh, for a pornography addiction support group. We were actually quoting this text to talk about where are our weak areas? Where are we most vulnerable? Like is it when, you know, when it's late at night? Is it when we're alone? Is it when we're bored or lonely or stressed or anxious or tired? Like, when is it? What is our weak area? And then we would start to talk about how we can proactively address every single one of those negative headspaces or every single one of those negative situations in which we might be triggered, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Like, we talk about this on an interpersonal level. We talk about this on a familial level. We rarely discuss this on a societal or institutional level for the entire church. And I think we need to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. Because it's because 
for one thing, we desperately need it. And I've said it before, but we are simply not going to become the church that we are meant to become unless we fortify these areas, unless we become the church that we are intended to be for the uh, minority members, you know, for the people of color, for the women, for the disabled, mm-hmm. for the LGBTQ community, for the people who are not American, who are not citizens or who are refugees or immigrants. We are not going to be the church that we are supposed to become a practical or rather a question I would like everybody to ask themselves is how we can fortify these different areas on an institutional level. These are difficult things to do, but I feel like if we can have these conversations from the ground up, we can eventually have influence on these different areas that need fortification. And you will notice that when they saw these weaknesses, Moroni saw these weaknesses and he addressed them accordingly. Perhaps if we can make these weaknesses more known to the church as an institution, they'd be more apt to... Uh, to fortify these weaker areas. Yeah, and I think it's important. You brought out this point that he fortified them in advance. It wasn't reactive. It wasn't after reactive. You, I realized, like, I'm wondering what do we have, like, we didn't, as a church, get ahead of racial justice. We, we did didn't not. get ahead of, of these other issues as well. And I'm wondering, and these these didn't come out of nowhere. We've had mm-hmm. 40 years to, to re- well, we've had, we've had more than 40 years. <laughs> we've had more but than 40 I think years. We've had a lot of time to wrestle with these and get ahead of these things, and we haven't. And I think, so yes, when we look at the fortifications, it reminds me of something in the title of Liberty. It says, in memory of our God, our religion, and freedom, and our peace, our wives, and our children. There is a little bit of benevolent, a benevolent approach to, well, we're taking care of our wives and our children, but they're looking at, well, where are the vulnerable individuals and what, what really matters? And the other thing about this title of liberty is I think it's really cool for marginalized people in the church or in the world to consider making our own title of liberty. Like, what are our values? What are our priorities? Mm. And what would we put on our our own individual title? Because we have the right to liken the scriptures unto ourselves. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what would be on the LGBT uh, title of liberty, and it might be different for every one of us, but mm. it's something to think about. Like, we have the right to, to make that claim. To take a couple of steps back, I do want to come back to this battle that uh, Captain Moroni had with uh, Zarahemna briefly. Because there are some great moments here, but also some moments where I had to look at Captain Moroni a little bit differently. There are some parts of this story where I thought he was a little bit extra, but also some parts where I was like, that's pretty gangster. I love Captain Moroni for that. That is my guy right there. But I I want to talk briefly about how this battle goes and what we can learn from this like in terms of our relationship with God. So Captain Moroni, at the conclusion of one of these battles that they have with uh, the people of Zarahemna, he gives very specific instructions to them to follow. So basically to set the stage, Moroni's got his army, Lehi, his uh, comrade-in-arms, he's got his army, and they've surrounded the entirety of Zarahemna's army and their people. So basically Zarahemna has lost this battle. They've lost this fight. So he's surrounding them because he doesn't want to shed any more of their blood. He gives them very specific instructions to follow if they are to retain their lives and depart in peace. But not before declaring the superiority of their cause and their religion, which is something I felt we could have done without, but not really relevant, I guess. It's a little bit gloaty. But uh, the terms are to make a covenant of peace and to give up their weapons of war. That is it. That is all Mm -hmm. Moroni asks for them to escape with their lives and uh, to go in peace. 
So the terms are make that covenant of peace, give up the weapons of war. And Zarahemna, I don't know where he got the audacity, but despite his precarious position, he somehow feels like he's in a position to negotiate. Uh, and Moroni's response is so petty. This is the moment where I'm just like, Moroni's gangster, man. I like this dude. It's so <laughs> petty. But what he basically does is he says, all right, that's what you want. I'm a man of my word. Take your weapons back. Let's finish this. Let's finish this fight. And I'm just like, yo, Moroni, <laughs> that is some, that's some cold-ish, man. That was so cold. <laughs> and the battle continues. And more, uh, people, more of the people of Zarahemna die, you know? And it's terrible, but it's also, again, pretty gangster. Now, what I wanted to bring out of this is I feel like a lot of us try to do this with God on occasion. We, I, I believe, and I've said this on the show before, I believe that people can make deals with God. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I believe yeah. we can make covenants with God that are totally independent of anything that we've read in Scripture. Like, we see the people, we see the anti-Nephi-Lehi's do this. They take something that's not in Scripture, and they make a covenant with God to lay down their weapons of war. In fact, pretty much the entirety, and you've already named this, Derek, Mm -hmm. but, like, pretty much the entirety of the uh, verses that we have in the coming, like, 10, 15 chapters are basically because the uh, anti-Nephi-Lehi's won't take up arms against their brothers. But this is something different that is happening here. God has oftentimes laid out specific and direct and strict requirements for what is required of us if we are to experience or to receive certain blessings. And sometimes we don't want to do that work even when our own well-being is on the line. In many cases, the barrier is the same as Zarahemna's, and I feel like that barrier is pride. Zarahemna really thought he was too good, despite being surrounded, despite being beaten in battle, despite his livelihood literally being at risk, he felt like he was too good to surrender at the hands of Moroni, even though such a thing would preserve his own life and the life of the rest of his men. But he didn't surrender. And I feel like a lot of us do that. We keep making an effort to, we we find ourselves in a position where we know exactly what we lack in order to progress Mm -hmm. spiritually or exactly what we need to do in order to progress spiritually. And we refuse to do it. So when we find ourselves in these spiritually precarious situations and we make the decision because of pride not to follow the specific instructions the specific commandments of god then we probably earned whatever trial we get as a result yeah well it's also important to realize that the whole mask thing is a thing where my choices can affect someone else so you so what's that phrase my rights to swing my fist ends at your face or something like that yeah, and so I would say not everyone who dies of coronavirus, it's their fault. It, mm-hmm. it could be someone else's fault. It exactly. Could be. And so this is this is a very clear, as uh, a very clear way of indicating that all of our fates are bound up in this inescapable network of mutuality. Yeah. To use Dr. King's words. About to say that sounds very familiar. Yeah. <laughs> and like what happens? And this is really. Um, Really true. A lot of people say, well, this is my right and my individual, whatever. But you have to realize that we as aren't complete individuals, especially on things like pandemic or or especially a thing like a war. Like if, if Germany de- or Japan decided to attack the U.S., we have to all band together, mm-hmm. right? And and or else we would have a, a problem. And that, that reminds me about like there were a lot of sacrifices that Americans had to make during World War II, 
around things like rations. Like you couldn't just get as much gasoline as you wanted. Right. And you couldn't do, you couldn't get as much copper as you wanted. You couldn't get a lot of these things. Uh, rubber, you know, tires, like all these things were rationed. Even food was rationed. And and I wonder where were the conservatives back then? Where they say, well, my rights and like, I want, I dis- they're taking away my liberties. And no, That's I a think, conservative voice. <laughs> I think, I think the vast majority of Americans realized, okay, we have to temporarily get together to fight off something bigger than all of us. Mm-hmm. And people in America made those sacrifices. And I, and I think a lot of people are talking about liberties here. Like I need have the liberty to not wear a mask. And I'm like, that's not at all in the spirit of, of of temporarily coming together, making sacrifices to fight off something that's way bigger than all of us. Mm-hmm. And, and especially given that that there's no human on the other, like obviously with, with Germany and Japan, there's humans on the other end of that war. But in this case, we can clearly say, I want to eliminate the virus, right? We want to completely get rid of it. And I think there should be no question that the ultimate liberty is that is to to have people flourish and and be alive and be healthy and 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 so we do have an obligation as a government and as individuals to protect the public health right right um it's kind of like a, the issue of if your house is on fire it's a public issue because that fire could spread correct we don't want to just say well my house isn't on fire so you know i want my individual no we're not individuals completely and you know this ties into something i wanted to say about um obviously i know the new testament a lot better than the book of mormon so i'm going to pivot to talking about (laughs) ephesians chapter six because here we have um, a military example this is the whole armor of god thing i'm just going to start out with by saying in Ephesians 6 verse 12 it says for we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places so he's saying we're not actually attacking people um, literally like warfare with with outward weapons what we're attacking is all these systemic things that are floating around everywhere okay and and so this, to me, there is a legitimacy to, to spiritualizing some of these war chapters. We don't want to m- make it too goofy, but I think, yes, there's, there's a, a valid way of saying, look, what can we learn here about spiritual defenses? And this gets back into just one detail about the full armor that we get in Ephesians chapter 6, and this is verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now, the word here for shield is thurios. And it comes from the word thura, which means door, because this shield was as big as a door. Like a lot of people see those little round cutesy shields. Mm -hmm. But no, this was one that really went from shoulder down to your calves. It was it was a very large rectangular shield. And the cool thing about that is you can line them up together so you have a full defense. You're not defending just yourself, but you're defending your whole formation. And I showed, uh, well, maybe we should put this on online, but there's this picture here of what's called a testudo formation, and that is the Latin word for a tortoise because that's what it looks like. You've got all these shields protecting the front, the sides, and the top of the people. So it's it's a togetherness. You're all in this together and I think that's the imagery that Paul 
is trying to say here in Ephesians, um, or at least the the letter that has come down to us in the name of Paul. All right. And so the Greek historian Thucydides, and he's the one that wrote about the Peloponnesian War. In his history, he says that these shields were wooden and sometimes coated in leather and soaked in water before a battle so that they could not be ignited and could be an effective defense against literal flaming arrows because what people would do is dip the arrows in pitch, light the pitch on fire, and shoot them. And so this isn't just a figure. Like, we've got literal flaming arrows, and this is the flaming that's not good, okay? There's another... (laughs) (laughs) Sod coming. Yeah. Sod coming. But this is the imagery that the author of Ephesians has for us as a community that we need to protect one another. And the other thing about this testudo formation is that people would rotate who's in the front because as the people in the front bore the burden... Then they rotated behind, so then other people would be fresh, and they could. We would share each other's burdens, mm-hmm. and we would be able to protect one another and and have this as a team. And I really think that's that's the real thing about this. Uh, the church is we're as vulnerable as our as our most vulnerable section. If you've got a, a spot in the formation that's liable to be breached, your whole thing is messed up. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how we are in the church. A lot of us try to say that we're as strong as our strongest and most privileged member, but I don't think that's the case. We're, we need to really look at where the, the fortifications that are most vulnerable and shore up those. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that, that really gives us a visual of, of what's going on here in these war chapters of how we can learn some lessons about protecting the vulnerable, and this should really change some of our choices in the church. What do you think? I also want to say that uh, we see later what the result of just having just one weak place ends up being. In the couple, a couple of chapters later, we read about there being a sort of civil war brewing. Like It's not to bloodshed, but there is some contention in just one area, and because there's contention in that one area, this allows Malachi and his forces to take over one of uh, one of Moroni's fortified cities and more fortified cities as a result of that heated contention that the Nephites are having among themselves. So uh, I totally agree with that. And I also like this idea of making sure everybody knows and everybody has a hand in preserving everybody else's safety. There is definitely an interconnectedness to mm-hmm. our well-being and to our safety. And I think about that all the time in the church. We really are only as strong as the member that has the most need. Like I said before, I, I, I really don't feel like we're becoming the church that we are supposed to become if we are not tending to the needs of our most vulnerable, of our most needy. Yeah, and that gets back to this question a lot of people would ask us, like, well, if this is the true church and this is God's operation here on, on earth— then why do we have these problems with racism and sexism and and homophobia, which appear to be maybe even worse than other churches here and there? Mm -hmm. And perhaps what is happening is, if we know that this church is true, well, Satan knows that this church is true too, right? And Satan is going to put his most powerful efforts on the true church. And I don't want to completely excuse everything that's happening, but I can see legitimately why we would be the most attacked by racism and we would have all the racism infiltrating us and that's where we're going to have, like I said, Satan's going to look at the weakest uh, parts here and the most vulnerable and use that to attack and embarrass the church. Absolutely. Done a good job of that too. (laughs) Yeah. 
you know, I try not to give uh, the Book of Mormon musical a lot of crap um, because it, it actually was a legitimately good musical. But I will say that one of the things that really put on blast was the church's racism. And, uh, you know, the church didn't directly address it, but I, I do feel like when we make it that easy and we don't do anything to proactively address the issue of racism in the church, then we kind of earn mm-hmm. that criticism. We definitely have the resources to do it. We just have to do it. I don't know what it's going to take to get to that point, honestly, but I really do think it starts with efforts like ours where we simply draw attention to it and we right. let people uh, and we empower others to do the same, thereby giving them the influence that they need or them the power that they need to influence those in their immediate circle to the point where we can eventually influence people that have a wider scope than we do. And that's why I love what you said about Alma 30 back when we talked about Alma 32 is that part of growing is to pull up the weeds and there's weeds in order to nurture faith that's an ongoing task and just because we have to pull up weeds here and here and there that doesn't mean that the church is false or Mm -hmm. that we're not faithful or anything of that sort it's just the nature of nurturing faith right speaking of nurturing faith i do want to transition to uh, the last point i wanted to make about well that occurs in these verses Now, I want to point to an often, often, often quoted verse from, I think it's chapter 40, is it chapter 48 or 47? It's 48. And it's verse 17. Now, I had the privilege of going to seminary as a young buck, and I read this chapter, like I remember when it was the Book of Mormon year. We read these verses all the time. I don't think this is a scripture mastery, but I remember when we got to this part of the unit, we... I think this exercise is almost universal across the whole seminary curriculum. But I'll just read the verse. You guys know it. Yea, verily, verily, I say unto you, if all men had been and were and ever would be like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. Now, I don't know if you know this, Derek, (laughs) but every buddy in seminary goes over this verse and you will have this exercise where they're just like, okay, now what I want you to do is read the verse again, but substitute your name for Moroni's. Like that's what, that is the universal exercise for this particular verse. Well, I mean, that's easy for me to do because my jokes can shake the powers of hell. (laughs) (laughs) Like Satan's not happy about my jokes. Satan hates your jokes. (laughs) Satan hates these jokes. Um, But anyway, like all the time they have us liken the scriptures to ourselves by putting our name in the place of Moroni to help us see ourselves as we ought to be. And that's great. I think that's a good exercise. But what I really want to get to is actually present in the next verse because it hits different just given what we talked about last week with Corianton and and knowing what his sin was Mm -hmm. and also knowing what he was able to do afterward. Now, just to remind you guys, last week we read the verses, we read the chapters addressed to Corianton about talking about the sin next to murder. We basically came to the conclusion that the sin next to murder was leading people away from the church. And one more, one more thing that we brought out was that how after these four chapters of Alma exhorting Corianton to repent and admonishing against admonishing him for his sin in the final verse he let him know that he was still called to the work 
he was still called to preach the gospel, which is a powerful lesson about forgiveness and a powerful lesson about the atonement and how far we can be brought back. In fact, this was something that we went over in Alma's story. Now, I want to read verse 18 because what we learned about Corianton last week is put into greater context when we read these verses. Behold, he, meaning Moroni, was a man like unto Ammon, the son of Mosiah, yea, and even the other sons of Mosiah, yea, and also Alma and his sons, for they were all men of God, all of them, including Corianton. Imagine committing the sin next to murder, leading away people from the church, and then still being able to be referred to as a man of God, the kind of man who, if all were like him, the powers of hell would be shaken forever. And I just wanted to bring that out because there, this is another beautiful story of redemption that we might otherwise miss if we read the text too quickly. We just learned that we could have just as easily put Corianton's name in place of Moroni, mm-hmm. and that just really changes the game. That really changes how I look at Corianton. That changes how I look at the atonement. It mm-hmm. changes how I look at the stories of redemption that are present all throughout the scriptures because I don't think we have such a long admonishing of anybody in the scriptures. We got four chapters mm-hmm. of talking about how bad Corianton's sin was, but now he's a man of God. Now he's a man whose name could have easily been put in place of Moroni's in this particular story. We could have just as easily had his name there. And that, again, just really changes the game for me, and I wanted to bring that out. And that helps us have nuance when we look at the historic historical record around Joseph Smith or Brigham Young. Mm-hmm. And they had their frailties, but they still were men of God. And being able to have both of those things and hold them dialectically in intention is something that's key to being a faithful member of the church that has a realistic approach to, yes, Brigham said racist and did racist things, you know. Mm-hmm. How do we navigate that? And you have to realize it's the same thing here with, with Corianton. And you can still be a man of God after making mistakes. Yeah. I think that's all I wanted to talk about for this unit, just given time and given how prepared I am to talk about all 10 chapters of this. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you want to bring up? I don't think so. All right. Then uh, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Before we do, just wanted to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought is a pr- is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network or lyceum.fm, L-Y-C-E-U-M dot fm dialogue is also doing a call for papers do you know much about that derek some about heavenly mother yes so dialogue is going to have a special issue on heavenly mother and they're looking for a wide variety of docu of submissions around heavenly mother it could be something scriptural theological historical poetry submissions are due i think in february so you have time to to do some research and not like we're doing much of anything else. <laughs> or, even if not, I think it's important to, to name so that when it comes out, you're able to uh, to appreciate this and look for it when it comes out next mm-hmm. year. 
Definitely. And uh, Derek, you want to let people know where they can find us? Yes, find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Also on Instagram, make sure you check us on Instagram because we're really doing a lot on Instagram recently. We just hit a thousand followers yeah. on Instagram, man. Yeah. Um, Yay. And then Twitter and uh, Facebook. Yes. And also, can you tell the people about uh, Spit and Mud? Yes, that is going to be starting this Tuesday, August Tuesday, 4th. August, yeah. And I'll be there. Are you going to be there? I will be there. Oh, good. I feel like it's going to be integral to my discernment process. I don't feel like I'm going to make very much progress unless I go to Dr. Fatima's class. And, and you, hopefully uh, you'll realize that a lot of how she's able to present things is and how she has been formed is based on her time in divinity school. So I want you to... Uh, I want to be Reverend Dr. Fatima when I grow up, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, if that means going to divinity school as much as I hate school, I will do it if I get to be Dr. Fatima. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'll be the the best version of yourself. The best version of my... I don't, I don't want to be myself. I hate myself. <laughs> but you can't I want to be, be Dr. Fatima. You can't be her. Like, no one can be her. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Except, uh, but what we need is you. Yeah. I don't know about all that, but like, if Divinity School can help me be a better version of myself, a more useful version of myself to the cause, because everything I do is for my people at the end of the day, then I'm going to do it, even though I hate school. I hate it so much. Well. I hate, I hate, I hate school. Let's do it together, and it'll be. uh, Yeah. We'll we'll do it. Yeah. We'll do it together. (laughs) Anyway, so that's Spit and Mud. We'll post a link to the uh, Eventbrite link where you can learn more about the course and uh, buy tickets. And I don't know how full they are or if they've filled up. I'm not sure because they were getting close to full. About to say, like. But they might be able to squeeze in more. I don't know. Tickets are still available for the time being. There's only a few more days till the class starts. So uh, get your tickets while you can. Finally. I just want to let you guys know about our Glow page. Uh, You can uh, donate to the cause, throw some coins at us at glow.fm slash beyondtheblock. Anybody who uh, contributes to this project and this work we're doing in any way will get access to our collaborator Facebook page, among other things, uh, where you can have more direct access to us, uh, give us ideas and feedback for the show, access our notes, and a lot more. And... uh Give us some new jokes. <laughs> yeah, give us some new jokes. I'm tired of Derek's jokes. Give us some new jokes. Yeah. And uh, also, it'll help uh, give us some ideas for some bigger goals that we want to have for ourselves. We've talked about a YouTube channel, potentially. We've also talked about a resource for Latter-day Saint activists that we would like to compile. But uh, yeah, we can't do that without you guys. For those of you who joined this week and have not yet joined the Facebook group, please do so so we can name you on the show. We would greatly appreciate that. And finally, want to uh, name our friends, Tamara Kemsley, who's been editing the show, David Doyle, who's been editing our transcripts, and Eden Wynn, who has been a rock star on our social media. Just uh, if you guys have really been vibing what we've been doing on the social media recently, you pretty much owe Eden for all of that because she's really been handling that business, doing stuff that we really could not do without a great amount of stress to ourselves. So thank you again, Eden. You are a rock star. Yeah, thanks. Anything else uh, that we got to handle, Derek, before we sign off? Nope, that's it. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us for this week's episode. Till we meet again next week. Okay, everyone. Bye.